hate the rich Neolibs are a bitch Medicare for all Bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. <laughs> I'm Kate Willett. I'm Julia Clare. Doesn't it like it feels a little bit more sad every time every week that we're saying that now? Yeah, it just it it does feel like we're recording from apocalyptic bunkers. Yeah, and I'm still trying to we're we're still trying to say the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. Well, here we are. We're still doing it. We're doing it from inside our rooms, as all real leftism is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't have beards and we're not in basements, so are we even leftists? I don't know. I, but... don't, I don't think we are. We're, a, we're above ground, so we're already class traders. I told a joke on Colbert about basement boys, and I kind oh, of yeah. defended them. And uh, yeah, it was funny because the joke was... You know, some of them don't hate women. They just hate windows. And (laughs) I, for some reason, I read the comments on it. And there were like, there was like at least one guy that was like, thank you so much for speaking up for men who live in basements. (laughs) The the representation uh, that men who live in basements have, have long awaited. Yes. I don't know. I, uh... You know, it just feels so apocalyptic and it feels like every day we just get like more news and, you know, it's like, okay, either, you know, we're going to have this sort of sort of under control by like fall or you're probably not until 2022. You know, it's like just such a conflicting and stressful information. I know. Um, Yeah. And like every day bleeds into the next it's very strange um i i think the only answer is to just have no no personal rules no personal um codes of conduct i slept in my sweater last night there are no rules yeah i uh it's, I don't know. I'm trying to get back on a schedule. I made myself wake up at 7.30 today so that I don't accidentally sleep until 11 yeah. every day. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's weird. The core is kind of turning me into like a pioneer wife. I'm like yep. doing the, the washing and I, I am, I got a little like herb garden to plant and stuff. But you know, lest anyone think that it's not feminist, uh, I make my boyfriend clean the kitchen every day. Uh, and uh and he actually does it without being asked a lot of the time. But there is a vague satisfaction in like fucking that's right. Here's a man doing all my dishes. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the only way to do it. I, I also feel that I've become a pioneer wife. I'm pickling things now. I'm baking a lot. Um, I, you know, I scored some some flour, which has been a uh a kind of scarce resource lately. Um, so I'm, pr- I'm Yo, pretty... Yo, where'd you get that shit? I know. I got a hot tip from my grocer about when a shipment <laughs> was coming in. So I uh, I got two two bags of flour. Um, but 
but yeah, so now, so now I'm all set. But I'm not, ba- I'm not going to start baking uh, sourdough bread because I'm not quite that sad yet. I don't think. Um, but you know, just a lot of a lot of cookies, a lot of uh, cakes, dropping them off to different friends, contactless delivery, um, because there's no way that my roommate and I can eat all of the things that I bake. And, um, yeah, but again, I'm pickling, which I never thought I would be doing. So I am, uh, a pioneer woman and, uh, yeah, we're all, we're all just trying our best. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Jake made a stew yesterday and we couldn't find flour. So we just put a little pancake mix in the stew, but I guess because of the pancake mix i thought i was like oh it'll just you know it's like basically just flour you know but i guess because of the other ingredients it did like sort of uh congeal and cook so now it's like just a stew with like pancake croutons wow yeah because there's like baking powder and baking soda and sugar yeah in it too that's very funny yeah so it's a pancake uh pancake stew this is you know Here's the thing. It's still really good. I actually think the pancake had something. Wow. That's <laughs> um, really exciting. I think I'll say it. I think that uh, that we're the we're the greatest generation. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is definitely up there in terms of uh, difficult events, I think, for sure. You know, I think that this will be uh this has got to be up there. This is going to be uh, some kind of great depression. And uh, I think that, our, that you and me, like our conversations have become like more and more unhinged every week. And I think that that's been like a fun, uh, a fun thing to talk about. Like we started this being like, this is kind of weird. And now we're both like, we're pickling, we're baking, we're putting pancake mix in stew. And uh, so that's, that's where we are now, folks. Uh, Thanks for continuing to stick with us as we de- devolve into whatever the fuck this is now. Oh yeah, I mean this I like doing this podcast cuz it's like the only time that I don't talk in a pet voice. I mean, I'm getting <laughs> these kittens on Monday and you know most of my conversations at home are either like full on anxiety meltdown or more often uh, about the hypothetical kittens that we don't have yet in full pet voice, how we're going to raise them, what they're going to do. I'm projecting a lot onto these little guys. What their what their politics are going to be. No, yeah, we decided actually we're not, um, you know, we, you know how like some people uh, raise their ch- children religious, even if they're not religious. Mm-hmm. We've decided to uh, raise our cats as resistance libs okay so, that's good gonna wake them up every morning by saying this is not normal and <laughs> yeah <laughs> and talking to them about the cheeto and chief and stuff uh yeah we, you know we just want them to have a good foundation that's good <laughs> we want them to understand that trump is orange he's orange know? um yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I fully... Uh, Kate sent me a picture of the kittens that she's adopting, and I absolutely mm, cried immediately. I don't know. I am, like, so emotionally fragile that, like, seeing a picture of kittens who don't yet have a home really uh, sent me over the edge. But... Yeah. No, it's... it's uh, the- 
it's a... I think I got attached to them because they were the ones who were being bullied by all the other kittens. Like, everyone just... There was, like, a little... There was a litter of, like, six of them. And so we picked the two that everyone hated. I was like, yeah, this is... These are our sons. <laughs> These are our children. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Nobody likes them. Just like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of Senator Bernard, um, so there was some some breaking news. Uh, a federal judge um, restored the New York presidential primary, uh, the Democratic presidential primary, um, which is going to be on June 23rd. So if you're in New York, you can still uh, vote for Bernie in in the primary. Uh, so, yeah, uh, basically, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, this came about because of my sworn enemy, Andrew Yang. Uh, Strange he, bedfellows you are now. He did you know? something good and I hate him for it. But, you know... <sighs> yeah, Andrew Yang sued uh basically so that all of the uh the candidates who are still in it could be on the ballot and yeah, a federal judge ruled that Bernie's name had and the other candidates uh who were removed had to be restored to the ballot so that will take place at the same time as uh the June 23rd primary which um if again if you're in New York, you'll be able to vote for um, a lot of the people that we've talked to by mail, uh, by yeah. mail, of course. Um, uh, a lot of the people who we've talked to on, on the show who are running in democratic primaries, uh, like Lindsey Boylan, like Lauren Ashcraft, like Mondaire Jones, who we're speaking to today. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's exciting. I am, I was so and I know that you were too, Kate. I was so upset that I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't even get to like symbolically vote for Bernie. Yeah. I mean, and if he gets like to 25% uh, delegates, you know, he has more influence over the platform. I don't really know to what extent they're, I mean, it's like what they say about the platform or not. I mean, Biden's going to Biden, you know, but I still, you know, it's still important to have the opportunity to uh, express our views. And also, I think the main reason that they did this is to kind of take the wind out from under the sails of the more progressive down ballot candidates. Uh, and it was I don't know, it was just anti-democratic. It was weird to see people celebrating like, yeah, now the primary is over. Like, it's just like. I don't know, for as much as uh, Republicans tend to worship this, you know, authoritarianism or whatever. And, you know, Trump is disgusting. But I mean, it's, it was it was just weird to kind of see this like centrist celebration of like, fuck, yeah, we're not having an election. It's like we you know, that's not good. It's not good to get rid of democracy, even though democracy does work out badly. A lot of the time, I, I do think that we uh, yeah, we should keep it. Yeah, we should keep it. We, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we should not. I was actually having this uh, this discussion with one of my my British friends yesterday. And um, I don't love a lot of the discourse from my my friends. Uh, my friends elsewhere in the world basically think that like 
this is a country that's just like overrun with Republicans and and that's and like literally one of them was like, well, it seems like poor and uneducated people vote Republican. I was like, that is not what. No. Uh, okay. We are, I I think that people just don't understand because a lot of people live in, a lot of people who live in other Western countries live in places where it is more democratic than what we have here. It's not that, you know, America is, has like a plurality of Republican voters. It's that America is set up in, our, our government is set up in such a way, our electoral system is set up in such a way that disproportionately uh, gives Republican votes more weight. And I think that, like, if you live in a normal, a more normal democracy than what we have, that might be hard to understand. But I don't know. I also just hate, I just think that there's, like, a lot of classism and, like, about the way that people talk about, like, the South. And uh, and that's obviously there's, like, racism involved in that, too. Um, but it really frustrates me when people make these like sweeping generalizations about, you know, and we've talked about this before about the South and about quote unquote, like red states and yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. I mean, I hear you. I, I, it's definitely set up so that red states have, you know, disproportionate influence, um, both in the Senate and, uh, in the electoral college, you know, I, I do think that there's some like kind of cultural shit like there's there are a lot of people who vote based on abortion and oh absolutely uh, you know but it's like I mean like we've talked about you know in uh to Charles Booker regarding Kentucky and to Kathy Kunkel regarding West Virginia I mean like the Democratic Party when it had control over those states like wasn't doing anything to help people either so it's like you know, I, again, like I'll never vote for a Republican in my entire life. But I mean, I, I think that the way that this gets talked about a lot of the time is like, yeah, people are uh, voting against their own interests, um, which is, you know, maybe true. But uh, the Democratic Party has a long way to go before uh, being able to kind of realistically make the case that workers you know have a strong interest in voting for them right you know no i I completely agree um and you know i i don't want to kind of minimize the fact that the republican party over the last 40 years has done everything that they can to kind of fan the flames of these wedge issues like abortion like lgbt um rights it's become like the cultural issues are quote unquote cultural issues are the one are are kind of like the only thing that Republicans have to hold on to in terms of their platform, because what they're selling ter- certainly like economically and for workers is nothing. So they're, they're holding on to these, to issues like, you know, again, like these cultural wedge issues. And that's, I mean, it's become like a very sort of like identitarian strategy, I guess. Um, but anyways, uh, huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, so, uh, yeah, no, I, you know, well, here's something, uh, really exciting. 
Joe Biden's uh, VP choice is going to come up. He picked a he picked like a selection committee, and it's like all centrist and shit. I think that his VP is going to be Kamala Harris. You know, I'm I just there's a lot of speculation. Uh, wouldn't like, that be yeah. Wouldn't that be a fun narrative? I hope you know that. I mean, okay, bad news. Kamala is a cop. Yeah. Good news. Maybe we can get her to arrest Joe Biden for sexual assault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, man. Whoever, obviously, whoever is selected for this position, uh, whoever is his VP selection, is stepping into a trap um, and is kind of going to be like a human shield for him. Um, and there's been, obviously there's been like a ton of discussion about the, the Tara Reid allegations over the last, uh, I think she goes by Tara, but Tara, yes, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, no, no worries. Sorry. It looks like Tara on paper. It, it, it is, um, uh, yeah, the actress Tara Reid has to keep i know she has to keep reminding people that she is not tara reed <laughs> that she was not sex and that she was not sexually assaulted by joe, by biden. joe biden uh an important note queen, yeah queen of the 90s uh teen teen comedies terror really rocked those crop tops oh my god she was she was great i miss her um yeah so it's a trap and as uh <laughs> yeah um yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, I've heard like the names that we keep hearing floated are Kamala, Elizabeth Warren, and Stacey Abrams, and Gretchen Whitmer. Yeah, Gretchen. and who's the governor of Michigan? And you know, I didn't know much about her before I don't this, know but, she, about but her. she's she's a, an insurance industry person. Uh, yeah, uh, very definitely to the center. Yeah, yeah. I mean. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 it's, it's been, and basically they're, they're doing the song and dance and Kate and I talked about a little bit about this before, before we started recording that they do every time a man is accused of something like this is every woman in that man's industry is asked about it. And like none of the men are. Yeah, I mean, he, Joe Biden was, like, finally asked about it. He went on Morning Joe and had, like, a real kind of meltdown of an interview, you know, like, basically, they, you know, Mika Brzezinski, who sucks, by the way, but she was like, you know, why don't you just release your, you know, your, uh, your the records in Delaware, you know, um, that are being held at the University of Delaware, basically, that, you know, may or may not have uh, Tara Reid's uh, original complaint that was filed, and Joe Biden was like, you know, oh, it, it's not in there, but, you know, there might be other stuff that makes me look really bad. You know, it's just it's like, I, I mean, it was just like a disaster of an answer. But yes, it, to your point, he, you know, these women, Stacey Abrams, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, you know, uh, I I don't know if Kamala Harris has said anything or not. I, I honestly just don't know, probably. But, you know, it's been kind of the, the rape apology tour. Uh, and I mean, it's like they're all trying to get the job, you know. And, I know, uh, but I, I do also think that it's they're not just asking the people who are they're not just asking the women, rather, who are potential VPs. They're asking like a lot of women in the Senate 
um, Democratic women in the Senate. And it, this is like frustrating to me because they're not, you know, they're not going to like Chris Murphy or Chuck Schumer or, you know, a lot of the other Democratic male senators. And I see this happening. This I felt I felt like this happened so many times in the like the nascent days of the Me Too movement where like any woman who worked with one of the men accused was like, no matter how tangentially she worked with him, no matter how separated she was from him was like asked about it. I, this is like a a particular bone to pick I have with, uh, with NPR's Terry Gross is that she is like, like basically any woman who ever worked with a man who was accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment. It's like, that's what their whole interview became instead of asking the men in the industry around yeah. it. Um, I know. I agree. And also I do really want to see you just fucking have it out with Terry gross. I want to watch you pick all your bones. With her. Guess what, yeah. Terry, I'm coming on fresh air and there's, I'm going to crack some skulls. Yeah, I mean, you know, Rebecca Tracer wrote a piece about this and to her credit, she was one of the first like liberal feminists to, you know, take a to write something about this. Um, and I mean, that's good. Uh, and I I mean, I definitely agree with you that uh, men should also be asked about this. I mean, mainly Joe Biden should be asked about this again and again. He's the one that is credibly accused of sexual assault but you know it's like uh I I mean in a way I think you know if you've made me too like kind of a a huge part of your brand like you do open yourself up to those questions like I mean Elizabeth Warren had that really great debate uh where she just you know fucking dragged Michael Bloomberg through the dirt for his treatment of women, deservedly so, mm-hmm. you know, deservedly so. I, I, I loved to see it. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, it, like if, if you have spoken about these issues a lot, I don't know, it, it, it does it does make sense that people would, would ask you about them. And, you oh, know, but at the same time, yeah. it, it, it sucks that people aren't asking the men. And I don't know. I mean, I think I've just been feeling pretty sad because it's like, you know, I, I, I do feel like the kind of, um, response to this has, I don't know, is, is kind of, has kind of exposed that me too is a political game for a lot of people, you know, that it's that, I mean, to me, it's, I'm not saying that like, there's never any kind like that every, you know, sexual assaults, accusation should be just a hundred percent taken as at like face value, you know, mm-hmm. but this isn't like a Jacob wool situation, right? Like this isn't, you know, like there's like people from, you know, the nineties that are saying, you know, that Tara Reid talked to them at the time. And I, I think at minimum there should be some kind of, you know, robust investigation of this. And like that there should be an effort to show that it's being taken seriously because it's like, otherwise, I mean, I mean, for a lot of reasons, both morally and because it's just if it just becomes this like partisan game, there's just no hope of it, of any accusation being taken seriously really ever again, because the other side will just be like, I mean, they do it anyway. Right. But, you know. Yeah. No, absolutely. I yeah, I I think that 
I think that if there's nothing to hide, then it's uh, it's worth it to really, uh, really have like a full investigation. I, I don't want to say like, I don't, I don't know. I, I actually, I don't know what the answer is. I don't like, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, like, why wasn't this found when like 10 lawyers vetted Biden for VP, uh, in 08? I don't know. I don't know the answer to any of this. I don't, I'm, I'm so exhausted and I'm so mad that, uh, everyone coalesced around, around Biden, uh, before Super Tuesday. And that's what got us in this, in this mess in the first place. Um, and now we have a, I'm mad that this means that our chances for losing in November are greater because I think we have, we have less of a leg to stand on, uh, in terms of what we're selling, uh, in terms of like what we're offering people who don't want to vote for, for someone like, uh, like the president. I don't know. I'm, it's just the whole thing makes me sad and some, I don't know, it's, it's hard. Uh, and, and I've, the glut of news stories about it just feels like, like, obviously there's real, there is real coverage about this, but I just know that, I don't know, just seeing, seeing it all day, every day is, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting news fatigue, I think, finally. Yeah, no, I agree. It's definitely not like, you know, a pleasant thing as as a woman or a survivor to just see, you know, kind of like think piece after think piece or whatever, or opinion piece or whatever, just kind of like, you know, who you know, we must vote for the lesser of two rapists or, you know, like, here's why uh, this, you know, rape victim is actually lying. I mean, it's just it's such a depressing discourse. And, you know, I mean, there's I personally, I think that, you know, I think Joe Biden is too weak a nominee. I think that, like, if you think I, I, my personal belief is that you think if you think it's like really important to get Trump out, which like. I, I do feel like very strongly about it at this point, just especially because of all this coronavirus shit. Like, I think that Joe Biden is kind of he's he's just too damaged as a, as a candidate, in I, my opinion. Totally. Yeah. And I think that that was like partly the point of Rebecca Traster's piece was like, we don't have to run him like there's still time to um, to replace him. Uh, so. I don't know. Uh, I mean, the likelihood of that happening is slim, I know. But, yeah, I agree. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, the only, again, the only thing that gives me hope are the people who are running down ballot races. Uh, and there are so many good, so many good ones. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if even one of those people win, my faith will be restored to some degree. But... Man, there's just been a lot of fuckery. Uh, there and- has, and but like the the bravery of people that you and I have spoken to in terms of like 
just taking on establishment incumbents, uh, especially here in New York, the people that we've talked to, like Lauren Ashcraft, Lindsey Boylan, and Mondaire Jones. Um, I mean, Lindsey Boylan was like, is running against like one of the most powerful Democrats in the House. Uh, and I think that that's, yeah, I mean, there are so many great people running for office who are like, are tired of, of having to settle for, for good enough or the lesser of two evils. And they're running on like really robust, inclusive justice like economic justice driven platforms. And that's just like extremely encouraging to see. And that's the only thing that's keeping me going. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to kind of wrap up on. We do have a really great interview this week, uh, with Montanzaire Jones, who is, uh, where, what, do you know what his district is? His, uh, the New York 17th district. Nice. Nice. Yeah. We had a really fun conversation with him. Uh, yeah, he, he uh, he's really seems like a really uh, smart and sweet person. And, and you know. he's running on kind of a, a really robust Medicare for all platform. Um, he also uh, initially was taking on uh, a really entrenched uh, incumbent before she decided to retire. Um, and yeah, he's running on. Uh, Medicare for all on a Green New Deal, housing justice, economic justice. Um, he's really ex- and the, he's just running a really exciting campaign, and uh, we had a great time talking to him. Awesome! So uh, enjoy this interview, and uh, please subscribe to our uh, Patreon so that you can get our bonus episodes. We've been making some really good bonus content. We just uh, dragged the fuck out of. Uh, Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. which was great, and we've, you know, we've had uh, some really good guests on those uh, Patreon episodes, and uh, yeah, please subscribe. It's like five bucks a month, and uh, you get like twice as many episodes. You know, you know, and you you love the reply guys. What a so. what a gift! What a gift that yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, we will uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Um, we are so excited today. We have a very special guest, uh, another one in our, our series of talking to um, prospective progressive candidates running for office. Uh, so today we have uh, one of the candidates running for office in New York's 17th district, uh, Mondaire Jones. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming on Reply, guys. Um, I'm so stoked to talk to you. And I I was wondering if you could start with the basics and just tell us a little bit about why you decided to run for office. Yeah. So I'm seeking the Democratic nomination in New York's 17th Congressional District, uh, where Nita Lowy has announced her retirement after 31 years of service. Uh, The district includes parts of central and northern Westchester County and all of Rockland County, which is where I was born and raised and where I live today. Uh, And I'm running for Congress because, for me, policy is personal. Uh, Unlike many of the people we're used to seeing in our politics, I don't come from money or from a political family. I grew up in Section 8 housing and on food stamps, raised by a young single mom who, like so many women, 
all throughout my district and all throughout this country, worked multiple jobs just to be able to provide for our family. Uh, and she got help from my grandparents. My grandfather was a janitor and later he was a small business owner. And my grandmother cleaned homes. And when daycare was too expensive, she took me to work with her. So now I'm running to represent the same people whose homes I watched my grandmother clean growing up. Uh, so when we talk about things like a $15 minimum wage or universal child care, uh, which Elizabeth Warren really brought to the fore, I think, in those presidential debates. And I'm, I'm proud to have her endorsement as of January this year. Uh, that stuff is really personal for me. That's that's so great to hear. And uh, we, we've talked to a lot of uh, candidates recently from kind of all over the state. So it's nice to, to come back, back home to New York and see someone like yourself running for, for office in our backyard. Um, so you mentioned a, a couple of, of policy points there, but I know that, uh, in particular that Medicare for all is a big, a big focus on your campaign. And I think, uh, you know, we're recording this on April 30th. Uh, it's kind of become like with the, COVID-19 epidemic, it's become pretty inescapable uh, that perhaps tying health insurance to employment status is not the best policy for when uh, unexpected uh, emergencies occur. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the imperative of Medicare for All in your eyes? Yeah. You know, this is something that I've been talking about since even before COVID descended upon us, right? Uh, I have been a champion for Medicare for All. I have been the only champion for Medicare for All in my primary. And it's a Democratic primary. And it was an electorate that even before COVID happened was largely in support of Medicare for All. Like the overwhelming majority of Democrats in my district support Medicare for All. Uh, And now we are seeing in the wake of COVID that over 90% or something like 90% of Democrats support Medicare for all based on recent polling that I saw. Uh, It was always the case that it was a terrible idea to have health insurance tied to employment. But of course, now we've seen approximately 30 million people become unemployed uh, over the span of a month since the month of March uh, as of the recording of, of this podcast. And so Uh, I think that explains the shift in public opinion. People are now seeing how even if they have health insurance and other people do not, uh, that it still does impact them in the midst of a global contagion, a pretty contagious uh, illness that people are really struggling to figure out. Um, And so it's, it's the perfect time to be talking about this. And I'm glad to be the champion for Medicare for all in my primary. And it's just a, frankly a shame that more Democrats running against me are not, uh, are not supportive of it. <laughs> I don't, we don't, we certainly don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, 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 we absolutely don't get it. I, I wanted to kind of shift gears to New York politics for a second. Um, in the past couple of days, it was announced that the, Bernie Sanders has been removed from the ballot, therefore canceling the Democratic presidential primary in New York. This is one of a long list of acts that Cuomo and the New York machine has taken to try to prevent people from electing progressive candidates. Um, What challenges have you faced running in New York? Has any of Cuomo's decision making impacted you? Yeah, you know, I started this race by running against my member of Congress, uh, who, as I mentioned, has served for 31 years in office. 
and then three months later, after people had told me I was crazy, that there was no way I could ever uh, defeat my member of Congress, so why was I wasting my time? She announced her retirement. Um, and so I've been running a progressive campaign from the beginning of this race. Uh, I have been defying the odds from the beginning of this race. Who would have thought that the guy who started out by running against the chair of the House Appropriations Committee would go on to receive an endorsement from Elizabeth Warren, uh, from Ayanna Presley, and uh, we'll be announcing tomorrow from the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, but here we are. And so, you know, th- this governor's uh, decision to cancel the presidential primary uh, is unfortunate because uh, people worked really hard to get Bernie Sanders on the ballot. Uh, and practically speaking, there's a real concern that uh, his delegates will now no longer be represented as the party develops its platform nationally. Uh, and, and that's a real problem, substantively, because respectfully, uh, and I do have great respect for Joe Biden, uh, he is not where he needs to be on a number of policy issues. And so that's why I hope to sort of nudge him and encourage him as a member of Congress, uh, which if I'm fortunate enough to win my Democratic primary in the Safely Blue District, I'll be able to do. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders had already withdrawn from the race weeks before Governor Cuomo announced his decision. And so I think that uh, progressives in my district uh, it, to the extent that uh, they were planning to vote in the congressional race uh, primary on June 23rd are still going to be doing that anyway. Uh, they had already prepared themselves uh, for the fact that Bernie Sanders is no longer actively running. Uh, so I don't think it's going to have a material impact in my race, uh, but I do see it as uh, an effort to depress turnout among progressive minded people who uh, would be more inclined to vote for progressive primary challengers in any number of state senate, state assembly, city council, and congressional primaries, uh, including against sitting incumbents of the same party all throughout New York right. State. So I think that you are the first person to ever come on the Reply Guys podcast that uh, says to say that you have great respect for Joe <laughs> Biden. Uh, I I will just be honest with you. I don't have great respect for Joe Biden uh, or any, um, which is totally fine. But w- the question that I wanted to ask you about that is like, do, do you plan on fighting the Democratic establishment, or do you feel like the best approach for progressives is really to work with some of these establishment figures and have kind of one foot in, one foot out? I don't think it has to be either or, right? So when I look at someone like Dan Lipinski or uh, Henry Quaylar in Texas, uh, Dan Lipinski being anti-choice, anti-marriage equality. Dan Lipinski does not believe in my right to to love who I want to love and, 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 and to memorialize that uh, in the way that heterosexual people are, are allowed to be have their, their unions memorialized. Uh, he doesn't believe in a woman's right to choose. Uh, and so to me, I would go up against the establishment as Dan, as um, Marie Newman did successfully. Thank God it took her two tries, but she did it anyway, despite the fact that the establishment rallied behind Dan Lipinski. But with some exceptions. Right. I mean, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago came out and supported uh, Newman. Emily's List, which has long been an establishment kind of organization, came out and supported Marie Newman. So you did have exceptions to that. Uh, but. You know, if, if it comes to something like that, the, the question is, I think, very clear. And, and it's like you, you've got to do the right thing when there is uh, moral clarity. You have always got to uh, push everything else to the side and say, this is what 
we have to be doing. This is the direction of the Democratic Party that we need to be that we need to be going in. And that's what I hope to do. It's why I, I challenged the chair of the House Appropriations Committee when everyone thought I was crazy. Uh, I also do want my colleagues to like me. I mean, I do understand that that is uh, typically required to get legislation passed. And so, you know, I, I plan on always speaking my mind, always standing up for the right things, uh, even when it's unconventional, uh, even when it means that uh, a member of the caucus uh, has no business being there. And we ought to uh, support a challenger to that in the way that uh, Marie Newman did when she unseated Dan Lipinski. Uh, there's no room in a civilized society for someone not to believe in marriage equality or, or a woman's right to choose. Yeah, I I could not agree more. And, you know, it, for me, just like it was completely mind blowing to see Nancy Pelosi endorse Stan Lipinski. Are there other besides um, same sex marriage and abortion? Are there other non-negotiables for you? You know, it, it's it's um, it's something, frankly, that I hadn't thought much about until I realized that there were members of the caucus who didn't support those mm-hmm. things. <laughs> um, you know, I was I was recently criticized by a prospective donor for not being gay enough for him, uh, which is which is wild because if you Google my name, it, like the headlines will pop up saying that like oh, first openly gay black member of Congress potentially is going to get elected in New York's 17th congressional district. If you look you up, it's and like Mondaire Jones, gay as hell. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I've been the, the, this is the gayest I've ever been in my entire life. My God. I There's was growing the sound up, bite from our uh, interview. Yeah, I was, I was, I was growing up in the Baptist church afraid to tell anybody. Uh, and, and now here I am and I'm still not gay enough for this guy. And he says, you know, I'm just worried that uh, you're not going to be able to serve your black religious community and the gay community at the same time. You and I both know they don't mix, which is like the most racist shit that you Absolutely. could ever say. So, yeah. Um, but also like try being a member of the house democratic caucus and not supporting LGBTQ rights. I mean, you know, but then I thought to myself, well, there's Dan Lipinski, but he's the exception. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's the exception. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. notable. It was notable that he did not support marriage equality. Well, yeah, I, I completely I agree. I, and, um, but he also voted against the ACA. And that is another non-negotiable thing yeah. for me, right? I mean, if you don't if you don't support healthcare for everybody in this country, then that's non-negotiable for me. Healthcare should be a human right, and people are dying right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think. I mean, I think even by virtue of your platform, which is kind of being a staunch supporter of Medicare for all, of a Green New Deal, of a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Um, you know, you are positioning yourself inherently in opposition to a lot of the like establishment figures in uh, in the Democratic Party as the as like AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and Ilhan Omar have done as well in a lot of cases. And I think that that's like that's a pretty good place to be. You know, I, I want to make the following observation. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who just came out, well, first of all, he's widely perceived to be the next Speaker of the House, right, after Nancy Pelosi retires. Um, He came out for Medicare for All a few months ago, and that was notable. 
because I think it shows that Bernie Sanders has really shifted the Overton window. He's shifted the conversation such that what was uh, the left view maybe a decade ago, the public option. And, you know, I was part of the Obama administration when we couldn't even get a public option passed. That was like the gold standard. If you remember those debates between Hillary and Barack Obama, Hillary was the one pushing for a public option. Barack Obama was like, eh, I'm not there yet, you know? Uh, and then, of course, we know that there were a number of Democratic senators who blocked the public option from being enacted. Now, if you don't support Medicare for all, like you're, you know, that's increasingly not a mainstream position to be in opposition to Medicare for all. And I think that what has happened with COVID is going to permanently shift uh, public opinion in the direction of Medicare for all in a real significant way. It already has. I think, I don't think it's, I don't think we're going to see that 90% just completely evaporate, right? I think you're going to still see a large majority of people support Medicare for all after we put, we pull ourselves out of, out of this pandemic. Uh, so I think the establishment or a lot of people in the establishment, not everybody, uh, is increasingly shifting to the left on these issues. Um, I think you'll see Joe Biden, uh, as he has started to do, though not to my satisfaction by any stretch of the imagination, uh, sort of tinker with his support for Medicare eligibility, for example, right? Um, but he needs to go a lot further to the left than he is right now. Yeah, I think, and I think to your yeah. point, it's it's either that a lot of the establishment Democrats are moving left on these issues, or they're getting primaried by someone who does believe in these issues. You know, this uh, the person who killed the public option was Joe Lieberman, and he. This is not the party of of Joe Lieberman's anymore, uh, and it's certainly you know. We saw that in, I think we saw that a lot in the candidacy of Michael Bloomberg. That's the kind of like playing both sides of the fence that he was, that he was, uh, that he was trying to sell and no one was buying it. Uh, and I, that's something that like really encourages me a lot is that while the Democratic establishment and unfortunately some of the people who are in the highest positions of the Democratic Party are, are too slow to, uh, come around to these issues. And in, in my view, um, I think the, the, I think the voters are to, you know, to what you said earlier, the voters are, are there. And, uh, and there has been a lot of, of gains made at the state level. And um, certainly in, in blue states in, in state and local elections. And yeah, people, people like yourself, uh, running kind of unequivocating, robust, progressive platforms and just not apologizing for it. And that's kind of what we have to do because it's like, of course we wouldn't apologize. It's, it's showing that it's like, yeah, we're not going to apologize for it because it's the morally right thing to do. It's the morally right position. My member of Congress reversed her position on impeachment two weeks after I announced my primary challenge. It was the first primary challenge in 30 years. Uh, that she had ever had. Uh, it is believed by many people that her support for a Green New Deal was only after someone else who was considering primarying her uh, wrote an op-ed criticizing her for not yet being there on the issue last year. Uh, but also, just generally speaking, when it comes to primaries, 
there's a bit of a there's a bit of a double standard here, right? I mean, a number of members of the so-called establishment uh, in the in the Democratic caucus in the House have come out and endorsed Joe Kennedy's primary challenge of Ed Markey oh, in the oh, United you States don't, You don't have to get me started on this. I I'm we hate I'm to from, see. I'm from Massachusetts, and this is like my number one. Oh, this this is this keeps me up at night. It is also the case that Congressman Jeffries, uh, who has been railing against primary challenges lately, uh, uh, will acknowledge that he started out his run for Congress by running against Ed Towns, who then dropped out of the race Um, and and subsequently towards the end of that primary endorsed his his opponent in the primary. But, you know, so look, people have been running primary challenges for a long time. And and we've got a level set, um, and I think it's it's okay to remind people of of, uh, of the fact that primaries are a, a good thing; they're healthy for democracy. Absolutely. Uh, I, I have made the argument, you know, back when uh, needed Congresswoman Lowy was in the race, that uh, we can afford to challenge ourselves to do better, even as we challenge Republicans in a safely blue district. I have a a follow up question for you on on something that you mentioned earlier. I think both both of you kind of share this uh, optimism that the Democratic Party is in general moving to the left because as voters move to the left, um, the party will respond. You know, primary challengers will will win. I want to believe that so bad. And at the same time, we have in Joe Biden, somebody who has said not only that he doesn't support Medicare for all, but that he would veto it. Um, Hillary Clinton in 2016 was running on lowering the age for Medicare to age 55. Uh, Joe Biden is uh, talking about lowering it to 60, which would definitely help. But, you know, to me, it seems like Joe Biden is so in the pocket of the insurance industry and big pharma that we're really not going to see anything from Joe Biden that isn't totally insurance company approved. For example, even like Medicare for people 60 and up. I mean, I don't think that most insurance companies actually want people who are 60 years old. That's like a a drain on their finances. Uh, People who are older tend to, to be more expensive for them. So I don't know. I think... I think we could see support for something like a public option um, if insurance companies felt like it was going to perhaps take some of their most expensive customers off the rolls. But I I actually think that there's kind of no way of getting someone like Joe Biden to do anything that would potentially irritate his, his donor base whatsoever and that public opinion kind of doesn't really matter? How would you respond to something like that? I think to myself that despite my criticisms of Joe Biden, he is still somehow the most progressive Democratic nominee that we've had in the history of the United States. He's more progressive than Barack Obama. If you just compare... In in what way? If you compare his positions today to Bill Clinton's positions, to um, Barack Obama's positions, I mean, he... Is some like like I said, Barack Obama didn't support a public option at the time he was campaigning for Congress, uh, and we know that Joe Biden sort of came out for marriage equality without the permission of the President of the United States, famously, and sort of dragged that out of him. 
Um, so look, I'm not here to I'm not here to apologize for any position that Joe Biden doesn't yet hold because I, I've got my list. Uh, like I thought it was wild that all of a sudden, only in the past year, he came out in favor of repealing the Hyde Amendment, uh, which of course restricts um, uh, money, federal money, uh, for for use in a, a abortion proceedings procedures. Excuse me, and. You know, I would have thought that it wouldn't have taken so long to get to that position. But it's him or Donald Trump. So what are you going to do? Uh, to me, it's there's no question. Um, we have got to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, and so while my preferred candidate, candidates uh, over Joe Biden did not make it as far as I would have liked for them to make it, like he's going to have my full support because... Yeah, I- I I certainly can understand the position of supporting Joe Biden over Donald Trump. You know, absolutely. It's it's especially due to COVID-19. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Joe Biden would, you know, believe in science to a much higher degree than Donald Trump does. Right. Like this is an emergency situation. And so, you know, I I don't fault anybody for thinking that Joe Biden is a much better option than Donald Trump. Um, But, I, you know, I do. I do question with something like Medicare for all. Let's say we have, you know, a Democratic president, Democratic House, Democratic Senate. I, I still question whether Medicare for all can pass with so many members of Congress and Joe Biden himself saying that he would not only not support it, but veto it. Like, what what is the plan to get around those people? Yeah, I, I was surprised he said he would veto it. I mean, that was that was disappointing uh, because, you know, for, for freshman members of Congress and other members of Congress who, you know, are in purple seats or have, you know, flip flip seats from red to blue. Uh, many of them are saying, I can't go back to my district and successfully sell this thing without losing reelection. Joe Biden to be given a hypothetical where Congress has already passed Medicare for all and to still say that he's going to veto it to me is not the kind of outreach and to progressives and coalition building uh, that I would expect to see of, uh, of someone who understands that he has a problem with progressives uh, and has to be doing work to consolidate that support. Um, you know, you saw a lot of people in 2016, unfortunately, in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and elsewhere, sit out that election. Now, I don't agree with that, uh, but it's how a lot of people think. And so you have to meet people where they are. That's what poli- like you can't you can't write off Democrats uh, and still expect to win because, you know, there's for all the talk about how Joe Biden is the only candidate who can get Republican voters if you're still considering whether you're going to vote for Donald Trump in this election, you're going to make up an excuse to vote for him anyway. I think so too. After everything you've seen. Yeah. I, I, and I think that, um, if I could just offer my, my take on, on, on my, uh, my optimism about, uh, where the party is headed. I think it's just based on, historically the big legislative achievements in this country have not been based on the election of of one candidate even if it's the president it's it has mostly been kind of public opinion like a groundswell of public opinion is what passed um you know 
basically what got us like Medicare and Medicaid in the first place and the Voting Rights Act. And I just, I think that that's, I, I, I don't, I understand, I understand what you're saying, Kate. I just, I don't think that the people who are fired up about Medicare for all, and that's an increasingly like large swath of the populace, like no one's going away, even if Joe Biden is elected and Joe Biden is going to have to, if he is elected, he's going to have to answer to a lot of angry people. And I, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree. I don't agree. have any, I don't I, have I any faith the, in him as a person, like myself. No, I completely <laughs> but, agree. I completely agree that the, the popular support for Medicare for All will continue to grow, especially during COVID-19. I, I guess I just, you know, I mean, the part that I question is to what degree are politicians even accountable yeah. to voters anymore? I mean, I don't. I don't think that we've ever, you know, I mean, Medicare and Medicaid, you know, did pass at some point. You know, we've had in this country some amazing progressive achievements, the the New Deal, uh, you know, the Great Society. uh, But, you know, I I have, I think, recently been sort of questioning, like, to what degree someone like Joe Biden uh, or Nancy Pelosi you know, really feels in in any way accountable to what voters want. I think we see that particularly a kind of mask off in in terms of these bailouts for large corporations and and almost nothing for individuals or families um, during this COVID nineteen crisis. And you know, I I I am I've been kind of thinking like like what is the sort of strategy uh, for progressives in Congress to uh, to get around um, some of the more entrenched establishment figures uh, who, who are not supporting even very basic things for people like, um, you know, like uh, some some sort of more uh, aid to pay the, the bills, to pay your rent even when you're out of work because of the coronavirus, you know, I think I think if it's on the outside of Congress, it's movement building. It's, it's uh, building, continuing to build and leverage popular support, as you just referenced, for Medicare for all. Uh, it, it, that, by the way, means going into communities that historically have been disenfranchised, you know, shut out of intentionally from the political process. Uh, the black and Hispanic communities, low income communities uh, who largely support Medicare for all, the idea that health care should be guaranteed for literally everyone in the richest nation in the history of the world. And, and of course, we know we can't afford that. Um, we just bailed out numerous industries with $2 trillion over, overnight, right? Um, the airline industry, the financial services industry. We, we find the money when we want to. Uh, in addition to the fact that I'm constantly correcting people that Medicare for all is actually cheaper than the status quo. Um, where we are spending an unsustainable amount of money, artificially uh, priced drugs uh, and care uh, in the medical profession. Um, But inside Congress, it is, I think, continuing to get achievements, right? So if it happens that the best we can do is a public option, then that sets us up to then fight 
for Medicare for all in the next piece of legislation. Uh, and, you know, that is something that I think is typical of most large pieces of legislation. Like when I, when I think of, when I think of a public option, I, I think of the fact that we really wanted that, but a, a lot of people didn't back in 2009, 2010. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's crazy that like now that's the, the centrist view, but that's, that's how most big pieces of legislation typically have gotten done. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that, that, that the public option is now the centrist, uh, or like somewhat centrist center conservative option of the party. Um, but going back to your campaign, um, as we mentioned, as we all we all discussed, uh, if you if you Google you, you find out that you are in fact gay. And uh, so, if you are elected, you will become the first openly gay black member of Congress, which is history making. And uh, I just wanted to kind of get your perspective on what that would mean to you. Yeah, you know. When I was growing up, I never imagined that somebody like me could be in Congress. Uh, and of course, in fact, there's never been an openly gay black member of Congress. Um, I grew up struggling with my sexuality. I grew up in the Baptist church uh, thinking that I wasn't supposed to feel the way that I was feeling um, and, and fighting really hard to uh, not just hide that, but to suppress those feelings. And if I had had someone to look up to, in Congress, like myself, I mean, it would have been direct evidence of the fact that things really do get better. And that is what I hope to provide. And I think based on the conversations that I've been having to people young and old over the course of this campaign have been providing already in my candidacy. Um, representation is so powerful. Uh, I was aided mightily by uh, this show called Noah's Ark. Uh, where I saw black gay men in loving relationships for the first time ever. And it's like a TV series <laughs> that at the, t at the time was like off the air. Um, my, my female friends told me about, <laughs> about the show, um, who probably suspected that I was gay. <laughs> um, you know, when Frank Ocean acknowledged publicly that uh, so many of the songs on Channel Orange were addressed to another man, that bolstered. Uh, my courage in, 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 in coming out to my friends and family uh, and other loved ones, uh, including colleagues, you know, when I was a summer intern in, in the summer of 2012. And I'll call that my gay summer in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it really is powerful. Uh, and and it's, it's why it's so sad that it hasn't happened yet. But I'm working really hard to make to make it happen. Yeah. And I think that, um, it's so inspiring to hear you talk about that because you're also, you're not, because you're also running on a, a deeply like progressive slate of issues. Um, so it's very exciting. Um, uh, yeah, I think that I'm glad that more people like you and we've uh, Kate and I both have talked to a lot of of other people running for Congress against kind of deeply entrenched incumbents are um, 
waging really forward thinking primary challenges. And I think that like, as you said, it is very healthy for democracy. And I think that a lot of people who, who really think that they like the idea of term limits, actually what they should like is just more people waging primary challenges when someone's ideas have stagnated and when someone is no longer representing the interests of their, of their district or their state. Yeah. Yeah. Hakeem Jeffries used to be uh, my congressperson when I lived in a different neighborhood in Brooklyn. And, you know, yesterday he was on Twitter, like, was it on Twitter or maybe someone was tweeting about what he said, but just, you know, kind of like something like, like basically um, that, you know, primaries were like that the, the Democratic Party was doing something to like kind of squash all primaries. Do you remember what that was? But I don't know. It's it yeah. was it was a reference to Morgan Harper's unsuccessful bid against uh, Joyce Beatty in, in Ohio's third congressional district. Oh yeah, it's just it's it's weird that they're so openly antagonistic towards primaries because there should theoretically be nothing undemocratic about a primary. You know, and I was I've, I've been a little surprised. And some of the public statements I've seen. I, yeah, uh, I also think that if you want the party to move forward in any capacity, if you want to bring the party into the future, you have to have primary challengers. You can't have people like we spoke to another candidate who, um, who did we just speak to? Who said that the person, the incumbent that he that uh, they were running against, um was elected when when he was born like like that's yeah that oh well i was i wasn't two years old when he yeah, got elected. see that is i mean to me that is indicative of an unhealthy party that's indicative of an unhealthy democracy because if you don't have a to me like 2016 is kind of what happens when you don't have a deep bench uh and i, I think that a lot of that has the the intervening years between between 2016 and now have been kind of a reckoning with the fact that we need to deepen our bench and the only way to do that is to get young blood with forward thinking ideas into the party yeah yeah I, I we had the most diverse uh, probably the youngest field in, in terms of the representation of young people for, I mean, Mayor Pete was like in his thirties, right? Uh, now I He's a millennial. He was not as my, he likes to say. Not yeah. my favorite candidate. But, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He's not, he's not ours either. We, <laughs> but uh, uh, I say that, I say that as a young gay guy, uh, but, uh, but you know, I mean, it, it is, uh, it is extraordinary that, um, you know, who succeeded? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I do think you know it. I was I was thinking about Mayor Pete, um, and in this conversation actually before because you know I was thinking like it would be amazing um, for us to send to have the first gay black member of Congress. I think sometimes leftists sort of you know underemphasize the importance of representation um like you were talking about it it is really important for people to see themselves reflected and um you know then on the other hand we see someone like mayor pete who's out there kind of 
arguing for these policies that should have died, you know, <laughs> decades ago and then being like, oh, but but actually I'm young and I'm gay. And, you know, this this neoliberalism is uh, is different now because it's a kind of a cute, young, gay uh, millennial, you know, that is that is pushing these things. Um, I don't know. I it's, think. Yeah. yeah go yeah, ahead. I, I, I agree completely. Like. If you give me a centrist, I'm not going to vote for that person just because they're gay or they're black. Uh, I've, you know, and and I would hope that no one would. Uh, you know, having said that, uh, in the normal course, you would expect that somebody who comes from that background will bring that experience and, and that it will inform their their policy positions, uh, their advocacy, their ability to connect with their constituents and their constituents' ability to connect with them. Right. Because one thing we don't talk enough about is. One of the reasons that representation is important uh, is that it inspires people to get politically engaged and to feel that their government represents them. Uh, because if people start to feel that government is not responsive, uh, in, in part because it does not reflect them, it does not look like the communities that they come from, uh, then you get people just not participating at all. And 2016 happening all over again, as you mentioned. Well, it's, uh, this has been such a great conversation. Um, is there anything else that we fa- that we failed to mention about your platform that you want to talk about? No, uh, just that people can check me out at mondareforcongress.com. That's M-O-N-D-A-I-R-E for congress.com. Uh, we've got a chance to send a champion for working people to Congress. It is the best chance literally in the entire United States of America to send a progressive to Congress. This is an open seat. Uh, my polling shows myself and my state senator ahead of the rest of the field. Uh, I have outraised him and the vast majority of my opponents. Uh, but we've got, without taking a penny in corporate PAC money uh, and without self-funding, because I can't impart, uh, be, <laughs> like my billionaire opponent, uh, who's the heir to a pharmaceutical industry fortune. Oh, gosh. Uh, but I know, I know. We it's hate just, to see it. The plot, the plot thickens. Ugh. I mean, it's... It, but... You know, he, it's funny. He hates me, actually. Uh, well, I, we, we hate him. him. I, I, I said that he was, on the day that he announced his, his candidacy, that he was going to buy, try to buy the election. And uh, he's been upset about that, except then he tried to buy the election. And he's actively doing it right it. now. Of course he did. Uh, so I'm not apologetic. Yeah. You know, billionaire is going to yeah. be <laughs> So. Oh, man. Well, Mondaire, <laughs> this has been so great. And... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, check out his his website. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, if you're in his district, uh, I'm sure that there are volunteer opportunities available for you. Um, and even if you're not, even if you're not in my district, you can still volunteer. We've got volunteers from all over the country saying, "Yeah, I'll phone bank for you. I'll send text messages. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll tell my friends who live in the district, which is again uh, Central and Northern Westchester County and all of Rockland." So. You know, White Plains, Peekskill, Ossining, Chappaqua, Mount Kisco, Port Chester, uh, Rybrook, Terrytown, Irvington, Dobbs Ferry, Sleepy Hollow, Pleasantville. We got all, all those the places heads. in the district. Yeah. And there's a little cat getting in front of Julia's <laughs> Zoom. It's so, I'm so cute. sorry. Um, all right. Well, I, you know, we'll let you go, Mondaire. We really appreciate you um, taking the time to come on Reply, guys. And we wish you the best of luck in your race. Uh, we hope that you defeat the shit out of this billionaire pharma person. 
I don't even want to learn their name. We're not gonna. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, the only person uh, running is Bondaire, so everybody vote for him. Yeah. Word, yeah. word. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. I appreciate right. it. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.